0: Never hug a sloth at the zoo. How did you even get in the cage? Never mind, I don't want to know. Obviously, I'm the most sneaky and subtle person you've ever encountered. Ha! And Ryan is the epitome of grace and tact. Nice use of one of your summer vocab terms, girl. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, where are those photo albums? Uh, I think they're in the closet. Okay. In a box. Um... Hmm. Well... I can't find anything. Well, if they're not in there, I'm not sure where Dad would have put them. They might be in our storage unit, but that would be less than ideal. Why? Well, we could just go get them. I'm sure Dad wouldn't mind driving. Yeah, but my dad has the key. Oh. Well, well we can get started on the poster, and then we can get him when he gets back. But I don't know when he'll be back, Kendall. But I thought he gave you a date. Well, he did, but with him, dates are always tentative. Like, you remember that time when he wasn't back for two weeks after the date? He told me he would be because he took a side trip to Brazil. He did that without even telling you? Yeah, and I was 10 at the time. Aunt Penelope was so mad. Whoa. I think I remember that. Yeah, it was the worst. Well, what about your aunt? Maybe she has some pictures. Yeah, but I don't think so, Kendall. I think my dad just got rid of all of the pictures. That's hard, Zoe. Yeah. Hey girls! Hey Dad, Mr. O'Reilly.
1: Thought I'd just come in and check on you. It's been, uh, well, considerably longer than the warm minute you promised.
0: Uh, dad, for the last time, it's a hot second, not mm. a warm minute. I'm sorry, dad. Mr. O'Reilly. We just can't find any of my pictures.
1: Oh, at all? Really? Well, where does your dad normally keep, uh, keepsakes?
0: He doesn't. I guess Mr. Reynolds doesn't really keep pictures or anything like that.
1: Hmm. Well, that's gonna make this project awfully hard.
0: It's like he threw away a part of me. I don't have anything that shows anything about my past. I don't even know where my grandparents are from. Well, and Reynolds is pretty (sighs) common. No offense, but it could be, like, from anywhere vaguely European. Yeah. If only my last name were Zeppo or something like that. Easier to track. Roughly Italian in origin. (laughs) Yeah, but send me to find another plan. You're not gonna let your GPA slip with this first project of the year, are you? Never, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. Like, I can't lie and say that I know things about my family, or that I ever talk to them, or that my dad tells me anything.
1: You know, that actually gives me an idea. Why don't we head back to our place? I guess, Mm -hmm. Alrighty, here we are. The old Riley family photo box. Um,
0: Dad, how are photos of our family supposed to help Zoe? Mm. Uh, yeah, no offense, Mr. Riley, but how does this tie into my heritage project?
1: Here, why don't you look at this?
0: Uh, Yeah, it's your family barbecue from a couple years ago.
1: And who's sitting next to Kendall?
0: Oh, Zoe, it's you! Remember, this is when you got to come to our family cookout after third grade graduation. Oh yeah, but this is still a photo of your family. I'm just there.
1: Oh, not just. You're also in all of these photos, and all of these photos, and I believe you're in all of these photos as well. Wow, I am, aren't I? (laughs) According to our family records, you're in most of our family photos from about 2009 onwards. Ergo, you are an unofficial member of our family. Ergo, you can use our photos in your family project.
0: Thanks, Mr. Riley. It's really nice of you to try to cheer me up and everything, but how are these supposed to help me with my heritage project? Who am I? Where am I from?
1: Well, maybe we can't help you know your heritage, but we can help you know who you are. You aren't your family, Zoe. You aren't where your great-great-grandparents came from. God shows you who you are, not photos.
0: Yeah, but it's still nice to feel like you have roots, you know? Like, you come from a line of people, or a country, or a history. Hey, you remember the story we talked about in small group this last week? Yeah, Saul becoming Paul. But how does that tie into this?
1: Well, if you had asked Saul where he came from, he probably would have listed a long line of priests, and Pharisees, and other people who did great things and followed the law. And? And when Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he became Paul, he changed. He counted everything that came before as worthless compared to the worth of knowing Jesus. He literally changed his name to signify the adoption of him into God's family and his decision to follow his father.
0: It's not like I have an impressive family, you know? I don't come from a good place like Saul did.
1: But the same facts apply to you. When you're adopted into God's family, he tells you who you are and where you come from.
0: And then he gives you an amazing new family! I guess he does, doesn't he?
1: (laughs) Speaking of family, I believe I hear the pitter-patter of Catter and Ratter. Huh? Cat and Ryan. Oh. Yeah.
0: Hey crew, what's going on?
1: Well, we're just looking at some family photos.
0: I wanna see! Uh, Let's see. Hey! Why is Zoe in all these pictures and I'm not? Because this was in your hide under your shirt and scream whenever the camera came out phase. Do I have to be adopted by the whole family? (laughs) (laughs) Hey girls, can you help me in the kitchen? Yeah. Thanks, Mr. Riley. You bet, kiddo.
2: Hey, thank you to the team that put uh, all four weeks. They had the, the shoots, and they did, they did all the writing of that, the directing, the producing, and the acting. And uh, Amanda, who did, uh, I think, a lot of the filming. And so thanks to you guys. Uh, that took a lot of extra work, and we appreciate that very, very much. It was awesome. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning. If you want to be, uh, take your Bible, your uh, iPad, your phone, whatever you have your Bible on, you want to begin to turn there. If you'd like one this morning, ushers are walking down the aisle, you can get a Bible from them, uh, get their attention. And this is our last of our family month. And so with our students that are here and with our children that are here from uh, North Shore Kids, it's uh, just been great to have you. You've been Awesome. Uh, I am so appreciative of the team that, uh, that have been sharing uh, these past weeks. Uh, gave me a little bit of a break, i got to tell you, and it was very refreshing. I'm ready to go. Uh, hopefully, I, I re- like I said, I remember how to do this, you know, because uh, these guys have, uh, have been carrying the load the last three weeks. And, and so I want to say thank you to Tommy and Emily who did the Path of Life uh, from Psalm, if you recall, Psalm 1611, where he makes known to us that path of life. We've been on the Discovery Paths. And so we've been looking at the various roads uh, from scripture. The second week, Damian and Daniel shared uh, about the road to Jericho where this great uh, story of the Samaritan and uh, and they both kind of weighed in on that and that was a bit that was a challenge about uh, Damien in particular remember when he was sharing about uh, learning the name saying the name of the people that sometimes it's not easy to and yet the love and the mercy of God shows shows up that way Uh, last week Stuart and Amanda they were talking about the road to Emmaus and how Christ reveals himself to along the way and along the road so thanks to each one of those guys I, uh, I I'm very very appreciative um, it wasn't exactly a sabbatical, but I did get some rest. Uh, you got a rest from me for a while, which probably you valued, uh, you know, somewhat. But you got, you're stuck with me now for the next seven weeks, all right? So uh, we'll see where that goes. We, we are, um, are looking today at the road to Damascus. And uh, so just before we get there, I want to make you aware, today we got a class called Get in the Game, and that is for those of you who are newer to North Shore. Uh, We've been on a summer break, but now we're ramping back up. If you have come to North Shore like over the summer months, we want to welcome you to this class. I teach the 101, which is joining our team and find out who we are, what we're doing, our vision, our strategy of how God's called us to get there. So that's gonna happen at 12.30 today, right after this service, and you can drop off your kids, if you have kids, uh, at B105, which is down on this direction, and then we will meet in the pavilion behind. If you didn't sign up yet, it's not too late. Uh, you can uh, do so out in the lobby, or if you've got the app, the church app, you can just get on there under events and sign up that way right where you're sitting. And we've got lunch provided, and it'll go to about 3.30. We also have the 201 class, which is our discipleship process. So if you've already been through 101, we want to encourage you to take the next step, which is our 201, find out about how we're we're, uh, uh, kind of fulfilling the Great Commission. And our team will be there. And then today, we're going to offer Discover Your Ministry. Uh, we call it the, our 300 class, which is how, how to help you discover how God's wired you up, the gifting he's put in you through, through the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to share with you some ways in which you can put those into practice for the kingdom. One of our elders, John Paxson, will be leading that. And so these classes are available right afterwards, and I hope you can join us. Uh, make sure that you, you sign up, uh, and, and we'll be prepared for that, all right? Um, one other quick thing: we we are preparing a trip to Israel on February the 13th through the 25th. I don't, I haven't said much about it because it pretty much filled up the first week that we made it available last February. Uh, because there was such a response, we've added a second bus, uh, and so there is a few more spaces than we would normally have. And wanted you to be aware of that. It's only a short window, probably in the months of September to get all the things taken care of and get your passports and all that ready. Um, and then we've got some things ahead of time that we like to do with a group in preparation for the trip. But if, if you've dreamed about uh, a trip like that and you'd like to find out more, uh, there are brochures that are out in the lobby today. And we've uh, specifically put them there if, if this is of interest. If you've come to North Shore maybe in the past few months and never heard about this, uh, wanted to welcome you to join us on that trip, February 13th through the 25th, okay? Let's, uh, let's take a dive in, into the road to Damascus today. We are looking at the conversion, and in my opinion, probably one of the most dramatic conversions in all of scripture. It's from the Saul of Tarsus, who was a, a devoted Jewish young man, a leader within the Jewish church at that point, and emerging, and he is who becomes what we've come to know as the Apostle Paul, and this is how it happens and uh, today as we walk back uh, and look at three phases, kind of his life, our theme today is that God shows us who we are. Now, he, he not only shows us who we are presently, but he's gonna take us back, and he's gonna remind us who we were, where we've come from, where we are, and then probably most important to us, what he wants to do with us as we move forward, okay? So that's the three areas we're gonna look at today, and I wanna take you first and introduce you to Saul the persecutor, okay? Saul the persecutor. If you have your notes, uh, you want to jot those down. And uh, kids, if you're here and you, uh, that you can see the pencils and things in front of you, I hope that you'll kind of follow along as well as we learn about Saul of Tarsus. I want to start off in Acts 9, though. Acts 9 and verse 1, it starts off and it says, But Saul still breathing threats and murder against his disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus. And that if he found any that were belonging to the way. Notice that's capitalized. That's what they used to call Christians before they called them Christians. They were just the way. They were men or women. He said that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So as we see the story unfold, Paul, or Saul, what was his name back then, he is anxious to identify who these Christians are, he's going to arrest them, he's going to drag them back to Jerusalem, and who knows what's gonna to happen to him at that point, but he's after them. He's what we would call a persecutor. Now, we're, twice today we're gonna to go back and forth to another setting, many years down the road, as as Paul now is sharing his ministry, he is brought before King Agrippa. And in this uh, kind of trial before the king, Paul is witnessing about what God did in his heart. And so we get some more details about this conversion as he's sharing with King Agrippa. Watch what he says before King Agrippa in Acts 26. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only uh, locked many of the saints in prison after receiving the authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogue and they tried to make, uh, them, I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so the foreign cities we're talking about right here is specifically Damascus. He's on his way to Damascus to find these Christians and that's, that's what he's explaining to Agrippa of what he did. Who is this Saul? What do we know about him? As I said, one of the first places the Lord starts is he shows you who you were. Those of you who have come to Christ, those of you who have come to know salvation, you can probably think back to the time when all of a sudden you realize who I was in my previous life or before I, I met him. And, and Paul many times reflected on this. He says, this is, this is who I was. And here he describes himself as a persecutor. I persecuted them with this angry fury. And you say, what was going on? More details we know about him. He described himself and his own background and heritage In Philippians he says, if anyone thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, which kind of in their mind made you you a Jew, you know. He says, of the people of Israel, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteous uh, under the law, I was blameless. And so Paul says, but all that doesn't count now But back then, that's who he put his trust in. His Background was this heritage. There was something going on in his spirit that made him so vicious, so vile against these Christians. I I suppose I'd have to have a degree in psychology to fully understand what it was that was carrying out in this way. And yet, when I stop and I think about it and I put the pieces together, let me share another detail that we know from Scripture. Over in Acts chapter seven, something happened. And his name came up again. Actually, I think this was the first time it came up at Saul. And here's what happened. There were a group of Christians, and by that point, thousands were coming to Christ when the Holy Spirit fell upon them the day of Pentecost. They were exploding. They were all over the place. And there was a group of Greek Christians who kind of felt like they were a bit kind of on the edge or on the margin and weren't maybe being cared for. And so the apostles, Peter and James and John, they came up with an idea, why don't we get some of their own leaders to t- make sure that they're cared for? And among those leaders was a young man named Stephen. Okay? Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, the, spirit, or the, the scripture says. And he, he was a godly man. And he was very bold. He would, he would proclaim Jesus out in front of everybody. And at one point, these leaders, the same ones that crucified Jesus, they heard Stephen and they got very angry at him, very upset, and so they arrested him. And he proclaims Jesus and he tells them about the history of Israel and how all of the history that you all would know leads up to Christ, but you crucified him, and this even made him angrier. And so what did they do? They took Stephen and they threw him in a big hole, a pit. And then all these religious leaders started picking up rocks, big rocks. And as he's standing down in this pit, they threw the rocks at him until he died. It was called stoning. And the Bible says that as Stephen was being stoned, as these rocks were were hitting him, that his eyes were looking up to heaven. And he says, I saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And then he said, Father, don't hold this sin against them. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And you could see the countenance it's as if it was like an angel. And then a little detail, they, they put the clothes of Stephen at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's what he's referring to. He said, I cast my vote for those who were put to death. He knew this. And, and you tell me, if, if you had witnessed that, if you had seen that, would that make an impression on you? And as I stop and I think, you know, what was going on in Saul's heart, in his mind as he's out here pursuing this Christian? There's something that he's reacting, something that he's responding to that he's got to go after these people with such a viciousness. And so now Saul, who's the persecutor, interestingly, the Holy Spirit is going to begin to pursue the pursuer. The Holy Spirit is going to begin to come after him And we can only suspect or use our imagination a little bit to understand what was the man who the Holy Spirit was coming after? What was he going through? What was he he thinking about? And that's the second part of today that I want you to see. We see Saul the persecutor, but now we see unfold Saul the one who's being pursued. Saul the one pursued. And how this transpires in verse three. Look at it with me, chapter nine, verse three. He says, now as we went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Now, this road to Damascus was an important road. If you go to Jerusalem today in the walls, the old walls of the city, one of the big major walls is the, the gate to Damascus, they said, because it's on the north side of the city and the road out of there is still one of the most ancient roads. that will go all the way into Asia from that point. And this would have been the road he'd been on. It would have taken six days for him to go to Damascus. Six days on a road. There's a lot of time to think, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think? And what was, he, what was he thinking about on this road? I don't know. I think it implies that he's, he's been on the road for several days because he's now approaching Damascus, so he's been on there for a while. And I'm gonna use my imagination a little bit. I, I just have this feeling that he cannot get out of his mind that picture of a young man, a courageous, bold, angel-like face being... being literally killed right in front of his eyes with rocks and stones, and him, him not crying out for defense or saying, you know, angry things at them or trying to get back, but just, just going to be in the presence of the Lord. I, I can't help but think that Saul is wondering, how are these people so confident that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah? to the point where they'll even lay their life down. Stephen was the first martyr. First one uh, that we read about who gave their, their life up for, for the sake of Jesus. And he wouldn't be the last. And this Saul and now is watching these Christians and they're just multiplying and they're just growing and there's so many of them. How could they all be convinced if, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was? He might have, in the back of his mind, been been aware that his own teacher, Gamaliel, because Saul was very proud that he was a student of the best teacher, the best rabbi in all of Israel, Gamaliel, but even Gamaliel was becoming sympathetic. Over in Acts 5, it says Gamaliel, his teacher, stood up in front of the, the Sanhedrin because they were trying to get rid of these Christians. And he says, listen, we've had people like this pop up before, and usually they end up being nothing. And he said, if this Jesus, if it's nothing, then, then it will just pass by like all the rest of them did. But if he's really from God, there's nothing you're going to do to stop it. That was Gamaliel. He was very wise, wasn't he? And that was, that was Saul's teacher. And so he's on the road, and he's thinking about this. And guys, when the Holy Spirit starts pursuing you, there is one word that will describe that moment. It's called conviction. Jesus said in John 16 that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of their sin. And we've all sinned, haven't we? Can we, can we agree on that? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's something in there that is in the darkness that's hiding and you know, usually what that is emotionally is what we call guilt. Is it possible that Saul of Tarsus saw this face and now it's kind of like haunting him and it's coming back and he maybe, as the Holy Spirit is starting to pursue him, that there is a guilt that he's feeling over, over what is he doing, How is it, why is this happening? And I wanna ask you today, have you ever done something that made you guilty, feel guilty, and you didn't know what to do with that guilt? You did probably what most of us do. You hide, or you stuff it, or you try to cover it up some way, or you try to circumvent it, or you try to make excuses for it, or any other number of things that we do, but it is the strongest human emotion that is out there is guilt. It'll change everything. And I, have you ever done something like that? And I want to ask you, have you resolved that? i got to take you back, and especially with the idea that a lot of our kids are in here, I want to take you back to a moment that stands out for me in the fourth grade, all right? It <laughs> goes back a little ways. In fact, I'm going to take you there with me. I'm gonna, with the technology of Google Earth, I want to take you to my hometown <laughs> of Tulare, California. That's my high school up there uh, on the right. And I lived two blocks away from my high school, Tulare Union High School, and then just a few blocks from there was my elementary school. As I zoom in, I'm gonna take you to my house. This is my house on Sycamore Street, right there. The one on the right, and it was a big house. There were six uh, city lots that our house occupied. And, um, and they had a big tree uh, on, our, on our backyard, and I found myself in this tree. I'll identify it for you, right there. <laughs> and on that tree, I took my, my uh, beloved little Daisy BB gun. If you ever saw the Christmas story, you know the story of, <laughs> I had one of those. It shoot about 50 feet, and, that, and then it, it you know, wasn't very powerful, but up in that tree, I became a sniper. <laughs> and I started pinging cars that were going up and down Cherry Avenue, and uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And then all of a sudden, uh, a car pulled up to the stop sign on San Joaquin Street, right about there, and I aimed for the back fender. And all of a sudden, uh, the woman driving the car slapped the side of her face. Her window was down. I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, but I hit this woman on the side of her face and the, and the BB lodged about a quarter of an inch from her eye. And she sat there and she rubbed the side of her face and I stood as still as I could possibly be in that tree because I knew I had done something really bad. Soon as she, after a few minutes, drove off, I, I scurried down the tree and, uh, and I went, went, went in the house uh, and never said anything. The next morning, I'm at my crosswalk to go to my elementary school, and my best friend who lived across the street from there, Brian McMurro, he meets at the crosswalk and he says, he goes, were you s- using slingshots or something like that yesterday or you know, doing, doing something like that? I said, no. And he said, why? And he said, because Officer Roberts from the police department came looking for who shot Mrs. Topps. I'm in the fourth grade. I remember going to class. I remember having lunch that day and I remember what I had for lunch that day. Because it all came back up. Macaroni and cheese just to borrow your imagination. I, I told my teacher that I was sick, and she said, what's the matter? I said, I think I have the flu. <laughs> and she let me walk home, which is you know back in those days. I, I walked home, walked in the door, my mom was home, and she says, what's the matter? And I said, I think I'm sick. And it didn't take very long at all, and I just blurted it out and I cried, I did it. I, you did what? I shot her. <laughs> <laughs> I shot Mrs. Topps. And uh, the guilt was just absolutely making me sick. But here's the worst thing that could have possibly happened. Well, my mom called the police. All right, (laughs) thanks mom. Uh, She called the police to let them know that that I had done this. And the worst thing that happened was they never called back. I waited days, I waited weeks, I waited months for something to resolve that feeling. Mrs. Topps lived about three or four houses down the block from that, that corner intersection. And I'm telling you, for two years, I'd ride my bike everywhere, for two years I would not go down that street uh, by, by not going in front of her house once I knew this. Something dawned on me at the nine o'clock service that I never really thought about before. That was the fourth grade, so I don't know how old I would have been then, but But I got saved, I bet Jesus, when I was 17 years old over in Pismo Beach, California, in a dramatic, much like Damascus Road, that night there were four Christian girls that were there and that they were the ones that kind of led me to the Lord and one of the girls' name was Patty Curry and come to find out Patty Curry was the granddaughter of Mrs. Topps. And I remember when I told her what I'm telling you and that was probably the first time that Jesus cleansed my heart from the guilt that I felt about that, because nobody ever called me out, never, never had to suffer any consequence, but it was lingering over. I wonder, is there anything, anything that you've done that that guilt just continues to hang on, and you're thinking, I'm just afraid, just like, just like Adam in the garden, I'm afraid, I don't want to come out of hiding, and to know that God loves us. And when when Saul is being pursued by the Holy Spirit, he's going to do, the Holy Spirit's going to do probably the same thing today as he did back then. And a lot of times it will come in the form of questions. That's what it sounds like. When the Holy Spirit is coming after you, and I say use that word. I don't know if you've ever heard of the poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. It's like a hound that is, that is coming after, and when the Holy Spirit's pursuing us, often he will use questions. I wrote down a few of these. Listen to, to the voice and see if you haven't recognized this. One of the first things from this text, he says, why are you persecuting? First words Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And that's a question, why? Why are you doing this? Why, why are you not coming to Christ? Why? why are you resisting this and by the way friends maybe you're in the room today but you probably know somebody who outwardly aggressively might might be resisting christ and they want to let you know about it i mean they go out of their way to let you know about it just know this they may be closer to christ than you think usually they won't be that um uh emphatic or or uh you know passionate about going against christ and there's something stirring in their soul And and often it's just a matter of a faithful person to come and guide them to the light, uh, as happened here. He also says, Paul says, or Saul says, Who are you, Lord? So you'd notice immediately he's transferring now to this voice who he didn't think was alive, and now the very Jesus that he's been wondering about, the very Jesus is speaking to him in an audible voice. We know that because the rest of the soldiers heard the voice as well. Who are you? Where are you? This is a question I kind of put in here because, because he says, I'm going to show you where you're going to go. But it starts with, where are you now? Where are you now? And that's what the Lord did in the garden with Adam. If you look at Genesis 3, when Adam sinned, he's hiding and, and God says, where are you? You know he knows where he was. He's God, right? He wants you to discover where you're at. And this is the second phase. He not only shows us who we were, but he's gonna show us who we are and where we are right now. And often it will come into question. I know the night that I met Christ and when this conviction started happening, kind of all of a sudden, I remember distinctly the question that kept going over and over is, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do now? I I graduated, all my friends were gonna be dispersing, I didn't have a job really to speak of, I wasn't planning on going to college. What are you going to do with your life? And it was so pressing that suddenly my heart became open to what the Lord had for me. Uh, Acts 26, going back to there again, Saul or Paul now is talking to Agrippa, and he describes it, he says, and when we had fallen to the ground I heard a voice saying to me in the hebrew language saul saul why are you persecuting me he adds this little note it is hard for you to kick against the goads he's explaining to him in that moment this is this is what's going on you're tr- you know what a goad is it's like a pointer i know growing up on a dairy they would use goads to get the cattle to go into the dairy and to have the you know to be milked and all that they would poke them and he says, you're kicking against the poker. The very thing that, that God is using to try to move you the way, you're resisting that and you're going up against that. Why are you doing that? And so there's this introspection and he's showing Saul now that he's coming after him and he, he finally surrenders and, and now watch what happens. This is the last phase. He's gonna show him now, this is who I've called you to be. This is who I want you to become. And we're going to call this Paul, now the Apostle Paul, the Proclaimer. Here's how it happened. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. You know, I asked myself a question as I was looking at this. I've read this many times, but, but there's something that kind of stood out. Why was Paul made blind for three days, right out of the gate? Why? Why did God take away his sight only to go into Damascus and have another servant, you know, pronounce that that could be restored? Could it possibly be that this was an indication that the one who was doing all the leading, the one that was doing Uh, all the commanding and the ordering. He was in charge of these guys going going after the Christian. He was the one in charge, and he thought he was in charge of his life. Now he's met Jesus, and guess what? Everything's turned over. He's not in charge anymore. He has to be led. Friends, would you agree that's one of the hardest things for us to do is to be led? Some of you think that you're in charge today of your life. Have you truly come to the Lordship of Christ, which means he's the master? That's why I called him, who are you, Lord? You're the one now that's calling the shots because he's had this supernatural experience. Have you had that before? Do you know what it's like to surrender yourself to someone else, to call the shots, the direction, everything, everything about your life now? And he's kind of reinforcing this. His sight was taken away so he had to be led but that was only the beginning, okay? Can I take you real quick to introduce you to one other person, one other servant. His name is Ananias, Ananias. And watch what happens. He says, he says, when I got there, Ananias, I'm looking at verse 10. A disciple in Damascus named Ananias, he says, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, here I am, Lord. You know, I love that because he was available. That's the first thing we read about him. Here I am, Lord. What do you notice, Lord? He was a man already under the, the command, uh, under the lordship, under the direction of Jesus, right? Here I am, Lord. Can I just say this? When you come to that place of understanding your, your assignment, the first thing that has to happen is availability. He'll never disclose the assignment until you've made yourself available to Him. Some of us have been sitting on the shelf and you've just been carrying it on and not doing, not doing anything. And, and you might say, oh well God show me, show me. You know, he's not gonna show you until you truly in your heart have made yourself available to, to do what he commands you to do. And I'll tell you this much, what God was gonna ask Ananias to do was not any fun. Rarely does God's assignment come in a um, uh, an enjoyable way, (laughs) I hate to say that, but sometimes it's a challenge. Sometimes it's flat out messy. Sometimes it's the exact opposite of what you would want to do, and yet you know, you just kinda know, Lord, this this is what you're calling me to do. Why do I say that? Because as soon as he told him what he was gonna do, he says, there is a man, listen to how the assignment comes. He says, rise and go to the street called Straight, "...and to the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision uh, of a man named Ananias." That's you, he says. "...come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight." Now watch what his response is. Lord, I've heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to the saints in Jerusalem. And he's got the authority to come and bind all of those who call on your name." You, you know what, you hear what he's saying? He's saying, this is a bad dude, God. Do you know this guy? <laughs> he's a terrorist. He's come to destroy. He's come to even kill some of us. Even the very name of Saul of Tarsus sends chills down our spine. It reminds me of a scene from a movie uh, called Lion King. Uh, you remember when the hyenas? <laughs> Let me show you the scene. I'll just, tell you, I'll, I'll just show it to you. Yeah. I just hear that name name. Remember, Saul of Tarsus That's how they would have been, you understand? And that's the assignment that he's giving Ananias And now Saul is led, being blind, he's led to this place. Wouldn't you love the Lord to say, go to this street, you're gonna meet this man, and I've already told him this is gonna happen. It'd be great if it always happened that way, but you know what? We just have to be attuned to what the Holy Spirit's calling us to do. And and Ananias Ananias obeyed him. Saul comes, he lays hands, his eyes are open, and here's what I want you to see. Here is the inception, here is the beginning of who God has called him to be, and I just happen to believe all of us find some common thread in in what that assignment for Saul was going to be. Listen to this. Here's how he described it. He said, rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. Now, is it possible his eyes were made blind so that he could be reminded forever how he started off that he's gonna be one to open the eyes of, of others who are blind? As he says, this was the purpose, so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There it is. His assignment, friends, could be summed up in two words, and those are the two words I want to leave with you today. I don't care how old you are here. If you're a student in the third or fourth or fifth grade and you're going to be getting ready to go back to your school, you can do these two things. If you're a college student and you come into a, a setting, you know, where you're surrounded by maybe ag- agnostics or those who don't believe, you can do these two things. I don't care where you live or where you work, you can do these two things. And they're this. He called him to be a servant and to be a witness. To be a servant and to be a witness. A servant is one who says, Lord, you're calling the shots now. You're the one who who is setting the direction for me. You're the one that's gonna give me the assignments. You're the one that's telling me to go. You're the one that's gonna tell me to stop. You're gonna determine the direction. I am your servant. Does that describe where you're at today? And the second is a witness. All he's doing, in fact, all he's doing before Agrippa, and this is probably years later, he's just saying, this is what I've seen. This is what I've heard. I'm just telling you what I know. I'm a witness. You don't have to be a theological scholar. You don't have to have it all put together to be a witness. All you've got to do is have a testimony. <laughs> Jesus needs to be doing something, hearing him say something to where you can pass that on, and that's all he's asking, to be a servant and to be a witness. And if he colors this a little bit, he's going to say, you're going to be opening people's eyes that are blind. You're you're going to be proclaiming to the Gentiles and to the the rest of the world that that they can receive the forgiveness of their sins. And friends, I don't know if I would have responded or not, but I, I just know this. For a couple of years, two or three years, I remember distinctly living with the guilt of sin in something that I did that I did not know where to go or who to turn to that would somehow be able to forgive me in a way that would set me free. And it wasn't until Patty Curry, uh, Mrs. Topp's daughter or granddaughter, said, Aren't you just grateful that Jesus has come into your life and he's forgiven you of all of your sins? If you don't know that forgiveness, I just would simply ask, what are you waiting for? What do you think is going to happen? What what do you think it's going to take to get you to come out from hiding? You know what that word we have for that is? It's called confession. That's what confession is. It's coming out from hiding. And the Bible says, if you'll confess your sins before God, he is faithful and just to forgive you all of those sins, all of them, and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. It was that same Paul, Saul of Tarsus that wrote those words by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that something? Today uh, we're gonna pray in just a moment and if you've never trusted Christ for your salvation I want to guide you through a prayer and I'm, just, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit may have done some things to orchestrate you even being here today and to hear these very words But we're going to invite our ushers. Uh, They're going to come and begin to distribute uh, the elements, a cup and a piece of bread that represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Because here's the truth, that those sins could not be forgiven had Jesus Christ not paid the penalty for our sins. Okay? If you'll take those elements, hold those until everybody else has been served, uh, we will take those together together in just a moment but as we sum up this whole not just today but this series of these various roads that we've been taken down and the work of God uh, at each one of those places what a great way to kind of tie this all together in remembering what the Lord did for us some of you here in the room and you've been carrying that guilt for quite some time when I shared that a few minutes ago and asked you that question something immediately popped up into your mind, didn't it? And, and you might not have been real comfortable with that because you've tried to stuff it. You've tried to put it into a place where you don't have to think about it. Again, that's a powerful emotion. But in the name of the Lord, it's just my privilege because I'm like one of those, like, like Saul, who was given an assignment. And all I am is a servant. That's all I am, mouthpiece, to communicate on his behalf and to witness to you what Jesus Christ has done in my own life. I can't tell you anything that already hasn't happened to me first. (laughs) There'd be no credibility. But I can tell you this, and I know this from experience, our Jesus Christ is one who forgives sins, amen? Amen. He is graceful, he is merciful. He's not going to uh, pound it, he's not gonna condemn you. He did not come to condemn you of those sin, he came to save you from them. But there's only one one thing we can do in response to that and that is to come to him he said come to me all of those of you who are weary and heavy laden i think that heavy laden is that 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 pressure we feel when that sin has not been dealt with come to me and i will give you rest would you like that this morning it's just a privilege to be able to share that good news The good news of what Jesus Christ did. And that cup you hold in your hand and that piece of bread, it was because of what he did on the cross that makes that possible. You and I couldn't pay for that sin. We couldn't do enough to absolve that guilt. It had to be somebody who was sinless. And that's Jesus. He's the only one that ever was. Sinless. And yet he went to the cross and he endured that for us. Let's pray. And as we just bow our heads humbly before the Lord, he knows you, he loves you. He wants you, if you're not already, uh, to be a child of his so that you can know his love, and he can reveal himself to you. Today, that's the bottom line. God will show you who you really are in light of who he is. He is a loving, heavenly Father. And I just sense in this room, that that love is going out into the hearts of the men and the women and the boys and the girls that are here. And if there's some uncertainty of whether you really truly have trusted him for that salvation he offers, for that forgiveness of sin, and you're open, you're willing to just let him know about your desire to receive him, maybe you'd want to pray along these lines with me just under your heart and your breath, just say, Lord Jesus, today I come to you. And I wanted to admit to you, I need forgiveness. I am a sinner. And I'm trusting you today on your mercy to forgive me of my sin. Would you cleanse my heart of everything that I've ever done wrong? And would you replace it with your own spirit in me? Would you give me now the power to live a life that's pleasing to you? Today I give my heart to you and I'm trusting you for my salvation. I do this in Jesus' name. And Lord, uh, today I'm going to pray over those who have sincerely prayed. You know their heart right now. You know exactly what has gone on before you know who they are right now and you know who they were called to be in the years ahead and I pray now that they'll begin to experience that abundant life that you've promised let nothing distract that let nothing take away these seeds that have been planted this very day and I pray this in Christ's name as we as we humbly remember Lord how this became possible is through your own sacrifice of your body and your blood that was spilled on Calvary. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.